follow me, follow me. You are here this morning because somewhere along the way, you heard Jesus say to you, follow me. Oh, maybe Jesus used the voice of your grandmother who hauled you to Sunday school. Or maybe Jesus used the voice of your father who said, get in the car, we're going to be late to church. Or maybe, maybe there was no voice at all. Maybe there was just an inner nudging or prompting that taking care of your own life was not quite enough. But somewhere along the way, you decided that the one you would follow is the one we call Jesus of Nazareth. So what gets in the way? What gets in the way of our following? Some of us wonder if the one we heard calling us is still speaking. Recently, I was tucking my four-year-old grandson into bed, and he pleaded with me to not leave him alone in that dark room. I don't like being alone. Please, please, snuggle with me. I assured him that I was going to snuggle with him. I was going to rub his feet and pat his back and singing him a few songs. But then I was going to quietly and gently leave the room, and he didn't need to be afraid about being alone because God is always with you, I told him. And he said, well, I know that, but God never says anything. <laughs> Some of us feel the same way. We have received no particular instructions about what God wants us to do with our lives, at least not lately. Some of us know, but we're just too busy, too distracted. How do you find the time for this following? Sometimes it's all we can do to get through the day to take care of our own family responsibilities and our own work roles. I look around and I see my friend Carol, who works 50-plus hours a week as an oncology nurse and still finds time to volunteer at the free health clinic on Saturday mornings, and I wonder, how does she do that? Or I look at my friend Mike, who is an executive for a multinational corporation who still manages to find time to coach his son's sports teams and also to serve as the volunteer treasurer of one of our local homeless shelters where he serves on the board. How do people do that? And then there's the doctor, a local doctor here in the Kansas City area, Dr. Paul Chen, who in this past year in his spare time raised $128,000 and then gathered up a group of teenagers to travel to Vietnam to install water filtration systems for 4,745 families who have water but no clean water for drinking. Where do we find more time in our already busy lives for this following? Some of us have time, but we hesitate because we are afraid. Last week, I saw the new film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You may have seen the documentary that aired about her several months ago on TV, but this new film in the movie theaters focuses on the landmark gender discrimination case that Bader argued long before she was a famous Supreme Court justice. The movie is called On the Basis of Sex. As the movie opens, Ruth is seated in a classroom at Harvard Law School, surrounded by a sea of men. She's well prepared, and every time the professor asks a question, she raises her hand, but she is never called on 
only the men around her are called on to speak. After graduating at the top of her law school class, she goes to New York and begins knocking on the doors of law firms, seeking a job, and not one firm will hire a woman. And so she begins to teach. But my favorite scene in the film is when she finally does get the moment to speak in front of a district court of appeals, three men in black robes seated there. She is very well prepared. She's the smartest person in the room on the subject at hand. But when she rises to speak before the court that day, she chokes. She trembles in fear. She bumbles her words. And finally, she yields her time and sits down. It was such a startling revelation to me to realize that even those we think of as brilliant and strong also have moments when they are paralyzed by fear. Later, she does get it together and speaks eloquently to the court. But the, when the world tells you that you cannot speak, when the world silences you, you sometimes internalize the message and you are afraid. Sometimes we don't follow because we fear that if we do follow, we will lose ourselves. After all, that text ends with that haunting line, they left everything and followed him. And what if we don't want to leave everything? I mean, life can be pretty cushy as it is. Why would we leave it behind? I love the story that is told in the book called a book of meaning. It is the story of Jean Venier. He made a radical career shift halfway through his life. He was an officer in the Royal Navy of Canada, and he decided rather than pursuing upward mobility, he would pursue downward social mobility. He stepped away from his professional career, and he invited two mentally disabled men to come and live with him. And he called this little community L'Arche, or in English, the Ark. He said that at that time, it was the conventional wisdom that mentally disabled people should just simply learn how to live well on their own. They should get some kind of basic job to pass the time during the day, and then they should come home at night and watch TV and drink beer. But he thought that the greatest need that was facing these handicapped people in his midst was the same need that faces all of us, and that is the cry to live in community. And so his project that began with one household where he lived with these men who were mentally handicapped resulted in 130 communities on six continents and in 33 countries where mentally disabled adults lived in community with non-disabled people. When Veneer was interviewed by several different commentators who wanted to know how it was that he decided to follow this call of his own faith and live this life, he, he downplayed their request and he said, you know, I'm not sure I could really say that I've dedicated my life to others. It's more like I've been pulled or attracted to something, and that's very different. He said, it wasn't a question of making some big choice in my life, but more a feeling of being led or drawn into something that felt more like, like a mystery. And he said, it's important to know the difference between a secret and a mystery. With a secret, 
the closer you get to it, there is nothing left. But with the mystery, the closer you get to it, the more mysterious it becomes. And so what looked like a mystery to others, what looked like a loss to the outside world looking in on his life, for him, it felt like a gain. You know, there are many, many times in Scripture when Jesus says, follow me. But today's story is different. Though it ends with the fishermen dropping their nets, leaving everything, and following him, not once in this incredible story does Jesus ever say, follow me. Instead, Jesus comes. He comes to the lakeshore where Simon and James and John are washing their nets and putting away the boats. There are big crowds gathered around that day wanting to hear Jesus give his teachings. And so Jesus grabs one of those fishing boats and makes of it a pulpit, and he pushes back from the shore so that he can make eye contact with those to whom he is teaching in the crowds. And after teaching the crowds, he turns and looks at those three exhausted fishermen who have been up all night long with not one fish to show for it. And he says to them, put down your nets, put them down in the deep water. And reluctantly, they follow and they begin to catch so many fish that their nets begin ripping open and breaking. And the boats become so full of fish, not one boat, but two boats, so weighed down with fish that the boats begin to sink. And everyone is astounded, amazed. Ellie Wiesel says, it is a great privilege to be defeated by God. And that is what happens in this scene. These professional fishermen are just shown how to catch fish by a novice fisherman named Jesus. Jesus could have called them to the synagogue. He could have called them to a garden for prayer. But instead, Jesus came alongside them into the daily grind of their work, and he shows them how to do their own daily work with a miraculous kind of energy, an abundant, overflowing, a life-giving spirit that they had not yet known. Who would have ever imagined that Jesus would come to them? At that moment, Simon and his friends are so enthralled, they are so stunned that they can't imagine doing anything else except following him. But you know that word follow could use a little explanation. For in Greek, the word follow could just as accurately be translated accompany. If you hear the word accompany, the meaning of the text becomes nuanced. It means that once Simon and his friends saw those amazing crowds gathered around Jesus, and once they witnessed this amazing catch of fish, that they realized something is so profound is happening while Jesus is accompanying them in the midst of their ordinary lives. And so they long now to accompany him. The new life they are being invited to is not a forced march obedience. Rather, the overflowing abundance of his holy presence simply compels them to go alongside him into a future none of them can yet imagine. We accompany Jesus because he first accompanied us. 
When I married my husband, Dave, he already had two teenage children, Carmen and Kyle, and three years later, we had our son, Connor. Kyle was not all that thrilled to have a little toddler brother racing around on his big wheel bike on the hardwood floors of our home on Saturday mornings while he was still trying to sleep in late in the basement. He found this little brother rather annoying. When Connor had just finished kindergarten, I took a sabbatical and I received a grant to study in London and the whole family came over for an adventure. But what I remember about that trip together as a family is that most days, Connor came to me halfway through the afternoon in tears, complaining that his big brother kept beating him up. And I would roll my eyes at Kyle like, you should know better than this. But Connor was undaunted. His main purpose for being in London was to go to the world's largest toy store Hamleys and purchased for himself an Obi-Wan Kenobi lightsaber. And so he stayed focused on that until the day came that the entire family made the trek to downtown London to go to this amazing toy store we had all heard about and we scoured all five levels of it, getting on and off the elevator, looking at every inch of that toy store and would you believe they did not have one lightsaber? Connor was devastated. Big crocodile tears filled his crestfallen face. Meanwhile, his brother Kyle was off in the Lego section. He had always been a fan of Legos, and though he had outgrown toys, he wanted one for himself at this famous store. When we gathered the family together and left the store, I remember Connor moping down the street as though the world had just ended. And I remember where we were halfway down the block when Kyle got down on his knees and knelt before his little brother Connor and he gave him the Lego. And immediately Connor's tears turned off like he had just turned off a water faucet. And the two boys went back to our little flat and they built that Lego together and later that evening after dinner, Dave and I said to the kids what we often said, hey, what did everybody learn today? And one of the kids said, well, I didn't ever know that British Parliament, blah, 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 and somebody else said, I didn't know that the Queen, and da, da, da. And then out of the corner, I heard Connor pipe up, and he said, well, today I learned that you can't judge a brother by his cover. What Connor learned that day was that he was accompanied. Love is not a forced march. Love is the overwhelming desire to go with the one who loves us.